Last week, John Micah did a just fantastic job of walking us through John 9 and the story of the man born blind. And John basically ended his sermon by saying, where are you? Who are you in that story? Are you the Pharisees who think they can see but are really blind? Are you his parents who know that their son was born blind and now can see but they're afraid of those around them? Are, are you the blind man who now you know, can see and you understand who Jesus is and you want to follow him? Who are you in the story? Now that particular story in John's gospel is one of seven signs. We, we call them miracles, but in John, the Holy Spirit called them signs. And they're signs because they function like any other sign. When you leave the church today and drive home, you will see signs everywhere. Have you all ever noticed that? I mean, there are signs that tell you how fast you're supposed to go, that there's a curve coming up. There are signs that tell you that there's a nice restaurant coming up on the right. And there are even signs that tell you that if somebody bumps into you, you can call this number and you can sue them. All right? They're all over. You see them. Okay? Right? I mean, there are signs everywhere. Look at what the text says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And then he tells us the purpose of this, these signs. He said, these signs are written that you might believe. That you might believe and that believing you might have life in his name. Now what's interesting is that the John is not the only person that takes miracles and uses them as signs. Mark does the exact same thing. Here are the seven signs you have in John's gospel beginning with the turning of the water to wine. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in The Chosen on Sunday night to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But Mark chapter 10, the text that David read this morning, plays that role. You see, what's fascinating about Mark is that the Holy Spirit inspired him to, to do something that, that scholars, when they look at Mark, they call them Markin sandwiches. In that what Mark did oftentimes is he would tell one story and then you would have more story that was kind of unrelated, and then you would come back to a story that linked you back to the first one. It's kind of like a piece of bread on top, meat in the middle, and bread on the bottom. And, and it's called the Markin sandwich. And this text is a part of a Markin sandwich. Now, if you open your Bible to the Gospels to Matthew, you've got Jesus opening blind people's eyes. But in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel as well, it serves a specific purpose. It simply says, this is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. He can open the eyes of the blind. Mark does something a little different. He's going to tell several stories and link them with two blind stories. Okay? Two healing of blind men that bookend or sandwich... The primary thing he's trying to get across. One of the things that I love about Scripture is that Scripture is just absolutely multi-layered. I mean, just layer after layer after layer. Anybody who spends a lot of time in the Word is always amazed when all at once one day you're sitting there reading the text and you're going, I've never seen that before. I've read that passage a dozen times. How have I never, you know seen that before. And the answer is that God is working in your life through His Holy Spirit to reveal Himself to you. 
And in fact, Scripture has so many layers that none of us ever get to the bottom layer. At least I don't think anybody ever does. I know I'm not even near it. Because I'm constantly seeing things in the text that I've never seen before. And I'm like, wow. Thank you, God, for letting me see that. And, and of course, God's letting us see it because he wants us to understand who God is and, and how we become more like him. So watch these stories. As they help us to ask ourselves some very important questions. To understand Mark 10, you've got to actually go back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, Jesus has just finished feeding the 4,000. And they're going back across the Sea of Galilee. They're in the boat. And notice Jesus warns them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And the apostles hear that. And the apostles immediately think, oh no, we don't have enough bread. Now you and I read it and we're going... No way did they think that. Oh, yeah, they did. I mean, they absolutely had no clue what Jesus meant by this. They thought Jesus was chastising them because they didn't bring enough bread. And Jesus' response to them was, Why are you talking about no bread? Are you serious? And here's where we need to pause. Because what he asked next, he asked to you and he asked to me. He asked all of them the people who follow me. Look at what he says. He says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears that fail to hear? And Les Chapman's response to that is, sometimes yes. Sometimes I don't see it. It's in plain sight. Sometimes I hear it, but it doesn't sink in. I don't get it. And I suspect you're the same way. And what follows in chapter 8, 9, and 10 is a series of stories that says, are you going to get it? Now it begins with the first of the miracle stories. They land the boat in Capernaum, uh, excuse me, in Bethsaida, uh, and, and in Bethsaida there's a man who's blind. And they, they bring him to Jesus. They want Jesus to touch him, to heal him. And so Jesus takes him outside the village. And then Jesus does something that kind of freaks us out. He spits in the guy's eye. Now, I think my mother and Jesus had a lot in common. And that my mother thought spit could fix anything. You'd head to church. You'd have some hair sticking up. And mom would take it. And, lick, and you, y'all had that happen, right? Lick that, you know, or, or you get in the car and you've been playing and you got something on your face and your mother's spitting her hand and rub it off. Jesus believed in spitting. Last week, John Micah talked about him making mud out of spit and putting on the man's eyes there in John chapter 9. Jesus believed in spit. And so he spits on the guy's eyes and he says, do you see anything? And I love the man's response. He says, well, I see people walking around like trees. Now, if you're not in Guardians of the Galaxy, you don't know who Groot is, okay? And so some of you are like, who in the world is that? It's a character in a movie who's a tree, okay? But that's kind of what this guy says. He says, I see people, but they look like trees. And so Jesus comes back, and he touches the man's eyes again, and his sight was restored, and notice he saw everything clearly. Now, here's the problem in the story. If we're not careful, we look at this story and think Jesus was just having an off day. 
I mean, the Holy Spirit was there, but it's kind of like a cold morning in the winter time. You know, you get in your car and you're like, uh, 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 you know, and you're like, it's not going to crank it. So you need to jump off. And it's almost as if Jesus needed a little bit of extra energy that day. And if that's what you think, you have totally not seen what's going on in the text. Because you see, what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us is that, that, that this miracle is a, is a sign. A sign to the apostles about how well they're seen. Watch how it develops. Next thing that happens in the story is they go up to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? They give him several responses. And then Jesus asks this question, but what about you? And Peter's response is, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. He sees everything clearly. Or does he? You see, yes, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but his problem was is that Messiah to Peter was not the same thing as Messiah to Jesus. And what happens next is that Jesus begins to teach them about what's fixing to happen in Jerusalem. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. I was with Clyde Head this last week. We were talking about this very text. You get these instructions from Jesus. I've got to go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. They'll kill me, and I'll be raised the third day. And so Jesus begins to teach this. And notice verse 32. He spoke plainly, which goes back to this. This guy saw clearly. Jesus is speaking plainly. You ought to be able to get it. But look at what Peter does. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And just a word of advice, don't rebuke God. That is not a smart thing to do. Now, Peter doesn't know that he's God in the flesh. I get it. But he begins to rebuke him. And, you know, Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. He is so frustrated with Peter. Why? Because, yes, he saw it, kind of like the blind mind. Yeah, can you see anything? Yeah. But it looks like people are trees walking around. Peter, do you understand who I am? Yes, you're the Messiah just not the kind of Messiah that Jesus saw the Messiah being. And so what you have here is a series of failures on the part of the disciples, failures that you and I both experience all the time. The first one is this, preconceived ideas and traditions. Every one of us in our walk with God brings into the process all kinds of things we've been taught from our youth up. We all have this baggage that we have with us. And unfortunately, a lot of this baggage was just wrong. In, in Peter's day, Peter went to synagogue. Rabbis taught in synagogue, the Messiah is coming. When the Messiah comes, he'll overthrow the powers that be, in this case the Romans. He'll reestablish the throne of David as it was back in the days of David and Solomon. And Israel will rule the world from Jerusalem. That's what they had been taught. But that's not how Jesus saw it. It's not the way the Old Testament predicted it. So you have a clash of ideas. And that is absolutely what happens in all of our lives. I grew up in a time where, at least in North Mississippi among churches of Christ, we, we had jettisoned the Holy Spirit. I mean, I remember being taught that the gift of the Holy Spirit was this right here. It's the Bible. And if you want the Holy Spirit in you, then you need to memorize the Bible. I mean, that's literally what I was taught. And I remember as I went off to college and began to study the text more and more and more, I began to think, oh, wait a minute, something's missing here. 
what I was taught is not lining up with what Scripture says. And, and that basically is the whole challenge we all have, is how in the world did we get around all of these preconceived ideas and traditions that we have so that we become more in line with what the Bible actually teaches, not because we've got to be right in order to be saved. Now, in, in one sense, that's true. We've got to be right in who Jesus is, what he did, and our response to that. But when it comes to all of the doctrines and teachings of the Bible, the reason we want to be right is because kind of like the doctor when he says you need to lose some weight, you need to eat healthier, you need to exercise. The doctor's not telling you that or else he will not be your doctor. He's trying to tell you that so you'll be healthier. And the same is true of Scripture. Mark 7, one chapter before, you've let go of the commands of God. You're holding on to human traditions. We can't do that. You go, so in Mark 8, notice the teaching. There's the first of the examples. Mark 9, you have the second one. By the way, identical same verse. Verse 31. 831, suffer, die, raised. 931, suffer, die, raised. But notice in this instance, but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. I thought he spoke plainly to him. He did. What's the problem? Too much baggage. What's the next problem? Next problem is now they're afraid. We don't want Jesus calling us Satan like he did Peter. And so they don't ask him anything. And of course, Jesus knows this. And it's here because we have the same problem. How many times have we allowed fear to prevent us from drawing closer to God? Fear of upsetting parents in whose faith tradition perhaps we were raised, but now we disagree with them. And by the way, can I give you a word of advice? Every generation is going to disagree with their parents' generation about something. I mean, my boys, I've got two boys, and, and, and mine and June's boys disagree with me on some stuff. And it's because June didn't teach them properly. That's the problem. <laughs> you know. But seriously, one of the things I have to be comfortable with is letting my boys and my daughter-in-laws and my grandchildren pursue their own journey with God. My dad and mom gave me that freedom. I've got to be able to give my kids the same freedom. But listen, the last thing I need to do is be shackled by fear of me disagreeing with my dad because my dad was raised at a different time than I was. Dad struggled with the Holy Spirit because he had been taught the same baggage I was taught and just simply didn't have the opportunity sometimes to pursue it. Going back to what John preached this last week, what was the problem with this blind man's parents? Why wouldn't they answer the question? How was he healed? Look at the text here. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. You see, if we, if we take the side of our son, they're going to kick us out of the synagogue. And synagogues in the first century was literally the center of everybody's life. Where your family was, it's where your friends were. I mean, can you imagine one Sunday you coming to the door out there and the and, and, and the welcoming committee out there sees you coming and locks the doors? You're not welcomed here. That's what's going on here in this text. Fear paralyzes us. A lot of us preachers sometimes get afraid of preaching the truth because we know that if we preach the truth, it's going to upset someone in the assembly. And I know that for a fact because I've been a preacher a long time. And we sometimes get paralyzed. You know, one thing I appreciate so much about elders here, the elders in other churches I've worked at, is, is that I've had elders who have mostly given me the freedom to preach what I believe the Scripture teaches. 
And of course, when you're a preacher and the elders tell you you can't teach that or you can't preach that, I remember one time teaching a class where I had an elder who immediately after class came up and said, don't teach that anymore. And I said, wait a minute, wait, what did you say? He said, don't teach that anymore. I said, but I just taught the text. And he said, I know it, but it's going to cause too much trouble here. And I looked at him and I said, are you hearing what you're saying? And he thought for a second and he said, yeah, that doesn't sound good, does it? I said, no. And he said, forget I ever said it. And obviously I haven't. Okay, but, but I'm not going to tell you who said it to me. He's a wonderful man of God. Take me. I mean, as soon as I told him, think about what you just said, he realized he had made a mistake. Now, in Mark chapter 10, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Last trip. Eight, nine, now ten. And notice the last phrase, while those who followed were afraid. A lot of fear going on right now. Who is Jesus? What is he doing? What's going to happen? A lot of fear going on. Takes them aside, same message, almost verbatim, for the third straight time. Y'all get it? I've got to go, suffer, die, be raised the third day. None of them get it. Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, none of them get it. I mean, they're not even listening to him. You're not going to die. You're going to go in. We're going to take over. We're going to drive out the Romans. You're going to be declared the king. I mean, this is what's going to take place. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. And then to prove it, look at the very next text. This is verse 34. Look at verse 35. James and John come to him. And they said, Lord, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And verse 36 asks a question that's so powerful. And, and, and by the way, this is one of those this last week as I'm working through the text. I'm going, how have I never seen this? This is nuts. But I have. Again, another layer being peeled back. What do you want me to do for you? What do you guys want? And y'all remember we want to sit, one on your left, one on your right, when you sit in your glory. When you're finally crowned king of Israel and of the world, we want to be your right and left-hand men. And look at what Jesus says. You don't have a clue what you're asking. Same thing he said back in chapter 8. Do you still not understand? Are your eyes still closed? You can't see? Are your ears still stopped up? You can't hear? Guys, you don't have a clue. And he goes on and he says, can you drink the cup and be baptized with a baptism? Oh, we can. And Jesus just shakes his head and says, you will. But it's not going to be what you think it is. And this is, by the way, from the message, David. Thank you for reading from the message because it really does lay it out. This is from the message, Mark 10, verse 41. When the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. You know, how dare you guys be so arrogant as to think you deserve the right and the left hand side? Have you not learned anything about humility and meekness and what Jesus has been teaching? No, that's not why they've lost their temper. They've lost their temper because they beat, beat them to Jesus. I mean, James and John had gotten there first. And now you see the problem. Jesus has to pull them aside and say, Now listen, guys, if you want to be great... And by the way, who doesn't want to be great? Well, some people maybe not. How many of you have been watching the Olympics? Anybody been watching the Olympics? Man, June and I, every night, we watched the Olympics. We were watching the Olympics last night. 1,500 uh, breast, uh, uh, 
butterfly, I think it was. I mean, incredibly long. I mean, 15 laps down the pool, back. And I mean, for, for 14 laps, three guys were just literally side by side. And, you know, American was one of them. And June and I are watching, and they kept saying, now watch what happens this last 50 meters. I mean, if they're not ahead of him, they're going to lose. And sure enough, you get to the last 50 meters, and, boy, his family's cheering, and people back home are cheering, and June and I are in there cheering. And all at once, he makes that turn, and, buddy, he takes off like a motorboat. And he touches that wall, and he goes up on the podium, and he stands there, and they put that gold, or he put the gold medal. They're not putting it around them this year. He put the gold medal on his neck, and he stood there and listened to the national anthem as the world celebrated him as being the greatest. Some people spend literally all of their life as they're growing up for that one moment, for that one moment in the spotlight. And we celebrate them when they do. But then what happens? What happens after you win one goal? Or two goals? Or three goals? One guy, five gold medals this year. Only the third person in American history to do it. Five gold medals in swimming. So what? What happens then? If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. You want to be first? Be a slave. And, and, and of course, his point is, it's not just preconceived ideas and fear. It's that desire to be great that messes us up. And by the way, preachers are as guilty of that as anybody. Is that desire to be first? I mean, yeah, I, I, want, I want to be first. I want to be the one chosen to be a deacon. I want to be the one chosen to be the Sunday school teacher. I want to be the one, you know, that desire to be first. And then, of course, if it's not our desire to be first or to be great... Is the fact that we're jealous of others who do have that desire. And all that then leads us to examples in the text of people who did incredibly stupid things because of jealousy of all things. Barnabas, in, in the book of Acts, the church was in need, sold some property, brought it to the feet of the apostles. And in chapter 5, and because you have that chapter demarcation, we oftentimes miss the connection. Chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira who does the exact same thing, sells a piece of property, brings it to the apostles' feet, except they put some back without telling anybody because, you see, they really didn't want to be a Barnabas. And it ended up costing them their lives because of jealousy. I suffer with all those problems. I constantly have to ask myself, why why are you doing this? Are your motives pure? Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. God has to constantly tap all of us on the shoulder and say, you know, get back to being what I've called you to be. And then you have the text. And you think, oh man, we're just now getting to the text. We're going to be here all day. No, we're not. The verses actually move very quickly. They're coming through Jericho. Man's on the side of the road begging. And by the way, if you want to see what's going on here in the text, just drive down Gallatin Road. You can pull to any major major intersection in Rivergate, and you're going to see somebody begging. I mean, it happens every day. It happens in Madison. It happens all over Nashville. Some are in wheelchairs. Some have crutches. Some are disabled. Some are just there because they claim that, you know, I've lost everything. You see the signs. And occasionally someone will be real honest. There was a guy down at Rivergate for a while who simply this last summer held up signs saying, I need wheat. 
I mean, that's what he said. I need, I need marijuana. And I'm like, well, at least he's honest about it. And I told June, roll the window up. Will you stop that? <laughs> Man. You know. you know. Some people deserve it. This guy doesn't. You know. Joking. Y'all know I'm joking. What's fascinating about Mark is that Mark's the only one that tells us his name. Matthew expands Mark's gospel. He drops the name. Luke expands Mark's gospel. He drops the name. But in Mark's gospel, there's something about that name. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. What in the world does that mean? And of course, if we had known about the language of the time, we would get it. What is son of Timaeus? It's son of the honored one. And here we are 2,000 years later, and there's something the Holy Spirit is wanting us to see in this story. How do we become a son of the honored one? And we do what this guy did. He's begging. He had, by the way, one time he could see, if you go to one of the other Gospels, it tells us that he, when Jesus says, what do you want? He says, I want to see again. And so he had been able to see at some point in time. And I think the message, David, in what you read, basically hinted of the same thing there. But anyway, he hears that, that the crowd's coming through. He's out begging like everyone else. But he knows that something is different about this crowd. Now, you've got to remember, what John preached on last week had happened a few months earlier in Jerusalem. A blind man, born blind, able to see now. Those stories were being told everywhere, including Jericho. This guy knew who Jesus was. And so when they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, look at what he says, Jesus, son of David, son of David. And by the way, that son of David is simply another way of saying, you're the Messiah. It's obvious you're the Messiah. Please. And of course you see the other people who are basically trying to say, will you hush? Will you hush? But Jesus doesn't. He stops and he calls him. Cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. I think the message says, you're lucky day. And he throws his cloak down, comes to Jesus. And do you see the question Jesus asked him? What do you want me to do for you? It was until this last week, for the first time they ever noticed, Jesus asked the exact same question he asked James and John about ten verses earlier. Never noticed that. Same words in the Greek. What do you want me to do for you? And what the Holy Spirit's wanting us to see is, are we going to be like James and John? Or are we going to be like Bartimaeus, the son of the honored one? Which one are we going to be like? So what do you want me to do for you? And boy, that becomes everything. Again, notice back earlier, James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. And the blind man's response is simple. I want to see. I want to see. Now, is he talking about literally seeing? Of course he is. But the Holy Spirit's wanting us to see that he doesn't just want to see literally. He wants to see what God has in store for him. He really wants to see everything that Jesus is. I mean, he wants to really see Peter. Peter's struggling to see. James and John, they're struggling to see. Me and you, I struggle to see sometimes. And so when Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? Will your answer be the same as his? Or will you be like he began back in earlier in chapter 8 
still have eyes, but you don't see. You still have ears, but you fail to hear. I mean, choice is ours. Which will we take? And I love the way the story ends. Go. Your faith has healed you. And, 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 and this is another one. And, and David was talking about the imaginative reading that we were doing in the leadership, uh, which was so good. He received his sight, but he didn't go home. He followed Jesus. All the way to Jerusalem. And David, you're right. If the Chosen does an episode about this, you've got to wonder if he's standing there at the cross still looking at Jesus. You've got to wonder how far did he follow him. And what I know for a fact is this. The Holy Spirit wanted us to know his name. I think he followed him all the way. And the question for all of us, do you want to see that badly? What's been preventing you? Traditions? Preconceived ideas? Fear? Wanting to be number one? Wanting to be the greatest? Or just jealousy because someone else is? Satan tries to throw up every roadblock imaginable to keep us from seeing who Jesus really is and our need to follow him all the way. If there's been something holding you back from the waters of baptism, something that you said, I just don't know if I can take that step, it's time to ask Jesus to let you see. If you've been following him, but boy, Satan's thrown some roadblocks, you've tripped up, you've fallen, maybe it's time to say, you know what, Jesus, I still need to put my eyes back on you and see. And if that's your case today, why don't you come together? Right now, it's together we stand the same.